Hello and welcome to the next instalment of MediaTel Conversations, a podcast brought to you by MediaTel. Our aim is to bring you the biggest names in the media industry to discuss the most important news topics of the day, as well as allow them to tell their story. This week, the director of MediaTel Events, Justin Leban, sits down with Dr. Augustine Fu, the leading independent researcher into ad fraud, to discuss his latest findings on the digital advertising industry. Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to host my first guest, Dr. Augustine Fu, recognized as one of the world-leading ad fraud investigators. He's rattled a few cages of late with his frankly frightening research about ad fraud in digital environments. He is taking on industry trade bodies, ad fraud detection firms, and calling out individuals who he believes are simply turning a blind eye. Dr. Fu, welcome. How does it feel to be in your shoes? You know, I see online some very credible names who show little care for your work and others who swear by your findings. I mean, in times like these, it's very fashionable to be polarizing. So well done for being current, first of all. But seriously, how does it feel to to be in your position? Well, it feels fine. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Basically, you know, as a scientist, I don't get rattled by, you know, people who don't share my opinion. Uh, And also because I have data and, you know, what I've shown over the years, I've been publishing on this topic for at least the last eight years and all of it's based on data. So we see some campaigns are managed well, so they have low fraud and other campaigns are not managed at all. So we see very high fraud, sometimes even 100 percent. So the numbers are the numbers. And, you know, I always fall back to the data and happy to have a conversation with anyone if they can also bring the data. So that being said, I feel fine. Well, I think you're a little bit more secure than me because uh, I certainly think that would hurt my feelings if I read some of the things that I've read have been said about yourself. So why don't you give us a brief overview of your findings and why it matters and why you are rattling so many cages? I mean, bottom line is uh, the fraud has been going on for years and years. And no matter what the number, so you've probably heard, you know, fraud is in the billions. And uh, whether it's myself or other fraud detection companies publishing these findings, you know, whether it's 2 billion, 4 billion, 9 billion, or 49 billion was the latest number, right? They projected out to 2022. No matter how big the number, no one seems to care or no one seems to even comprehend those large numbers. And a lot of times I come across folks who say, well, it doesn't apply to me. You know, because, uh, you know, our fraud detection reports keep telling us everything's fine and it's very low. So I've gotten more vocal recently because, you know, the fraud is continuing to go up and it's primarily because the spend is continuing to go up. Right. So for the last 20 years, we've seen billions of dollars shift from other media channels like TV and print and radio into digital. And as those dollars continue going up, Bad guys are having, you know, basically Christmas all all year long. So what I've done is I've built a, a technology platform to collect data. So there's a couple of things. I, I don't call my technology fraud detection technology. I call it analytics. Uh, basically, uh, it's a way for me to gather data that's reliable. Uh, and then I call myself a researcher and not a fraud detection tech company because there was a built-in conflict of interest. So when I first started getting into this area of research in 2012, uh, 2013, I had to decide on a business model. And if the business model relied on fraud to continue, then obviously I'd be conflicted as well. 
so at that time, I decided not to be a fraud detection tech company. I decided to be a researcher. And in this case, as a researcher, I'm able to show the clients the data. And you know, when we measure their campaigns and measure it with our own tag, we have reliable data to look at. So then I can actually explain to them what I'm seeing, right? So I can explain why I'm marking something as fraudulent and why I'm marking something as not fraudulent, right? So it's really about collecting the data. You might have heard Uber is now suing 100 mobile exchanges for both falsifying the data and fabricating the data entirely. So falsifying it means they're actually making it look like the ads showed on mainstream sites or legitimate sites when the ads actually ran on porn sites and worse. And then fabricating the data is where some of the mobile exchanges were actually making up the data in its entirety. They made up the Excel spreadsheets to make it look like a bunch of ads ran, a bunch of clicks were gotten and so on, and a bunch of installs happened. So that's why I don't trust anyone else's data and have to collect uh, the data using my own technology platform. So that's kind of the background of how I got into this. Okay, so you don't trust other people's data. Some people don't trust your data. The numbers that you're claiming here are staggering, obviously. The numbers that we hear from the industry are a lot lower. Now, the question that I see online a lot, which I have to ask you is, are you over-exaggerating your claims in order to get work? Are you cooking the books, if you like, and then to fly in there as the savior for brands for expensive retainers? Yeah, I hear that a lot, but no, because I can actually show them the data and it's gonna be their own data. So what I do for uh, clients and prospects is I give them a no-cost pilot. I give them my tag. So if they choose to look, right, there's another problem, which is a lot of them choose not to look. They choose to buy those detection reports that tell them it's under 1%, and then they're fine with that so they can keep buying. But if they actually have the courage to take a closer look and use my tag, they don't have to take my word for it. They don't have to trust my numbers. Basically, if they measure it side by side with the other fraud detection tech that they're currently using, my job as a researcher is to actually explain what they're seeing, right? I'm going to explain the data to them. And again, like I said earlier, explain why I'm marking something as fraudulent. Now, I'll give you a simple example uh, to illustrate. If you see a website, a domain, have 100% Android traffic, use your common sense. Does that seem normal to you? Right. If it's a normal website with normal human visitors, you should see a whole variety of different devices like, you know, laptops, desktops, uh, iPhones, uh, iPads and things like that. You shouldn't see 100 percent Android traffic. And furthermore, with additional detail, you can see it's 100 percent Android 8.0.0 traffic. Right. That specific version of Android. So common sense should be able to tell you that, okay, well, we understand why he's telling us that that's fraudulent. And then the next practical step is for you to just stop buying from that domain. And the way you do that is by turning it off in your DSP. So again, as opposed to the other fraud detection tech companies that have kind of a secret sauce that they have to protect and they don't want to tell anybody, as a researcher, I don't have a secret sauce to protect. I can show them the clients, the data, and explain to them. And on top of that, once they start understanding why I'm marking something as fraudulent or not, then they can actually take action on their own. So it's kind of like if you learn how to use Google Analytics, you can also learn how to use fraud analytics. So again, this is fraud analytics and not just detection, where they give you a number, oh, it's 10% fraud, 
and then they don't explain to you how they got that. So by explaining how to look at the data, some of the clients are now kind of independent there on their own. They can actually look at the data every week, every day if they want, and actually go do the fraud mitigation themselves because they can find the domains and the apps that are clearly cheating and eating up their budgets and they can just turn them off while the campaign is still running. So there's kind of an added benefits that, you know, they don't have to wait until the end of the campaign to figure out how much fraud there was. And if the campaign's already over, then their only recourse is to try to get a refund for the amount of fraud that was reported uh, in those kind of postmortem reports. In this case, if they can turn off those bad domains and apps while the campaign is running, they can actually make the campaign better. And so in this case, when they're self-sufficient and can look at the analytics themselves and do the mitigation, then they don't need much of my time, right? So yes, I have consulting arrangements, but it's not lucrative. It's not ongoing forever. It's basically for me to teach them how to do this. And then maybe after three to six months, if they feel confident and they can do this themselves, they don't even need much of my time anymore, right? So then they can actually carry on and, and do this themselves. And there's now many case studies, both small businesses and uh, big brands that are able to do this themselves. So they don't have me on retainer anymore because they don't need me anymore. That seems like a very manual process to go through your DSP and then, you know, remove the sort of websites and apps that are fraudulent. Like it seems to me it, it makes it is. It, it, it is. To- but again, you're not removing tens of thousands of sites. Because if you think about the long tail, right, if there's a uh, cheating long tail site or app that's only eating up 12 impressions, it's not meaningful in terms of dollar amount. But if you have a flashlight app that's eating up 10% of your impressions, then you want to take that out first. Right. So for those marketers, um, you know, it's really about removing the top five to 10 apps or domains that are the most egregious cheaters. Right. And if they have kind of clean buying practices, so I can tell you some of the marketers, they start with this very, very strict whitelist and they focus on mainstream publishers that you've heard of and that have real human audiences. In those cases, they really don't have much cleaning to do because they're at a very good starting point. And so in those cases, they don't have much fraud to deal with. And in fact, they're really only looking out for sudden attacks, right, where maybe one of the sites that they're buying from starts buying traffic or, you know, like when it comes to the end of the month, uh, this is another telltale sign, right? When you're buying from even a mainstream publisher, if the very last day of the month shows a three X or five X surge in volume, something's wrong with that, right? Because there's not a whole bunch of humans sitting around with nothing to do, but to go to your specific website on the very last day of the month. Right. What's happening there is that those sites are kind of running behind on their projections. Right. They say, oh, we have to deliver this quantity of impressions or page views and they're running behind. So they have to hit their number using bots on the very last day of the month. So we see that and then we can tell something's wrong. At the beginning of this, you said brands don't want to do it just very, very quickly. Why would they not want to do this? Yeah, that's kind of counterintuitive, right? But some of the bigger brands, you know, when you think about the marketers, the brand marketers job, unfortunately, their incentives are misaligned because their job is to spend it all, right? So imagine you have $60 million or $100 million and you have to spend it before the end of the year. So it's very inconvenient to find that there's fraud in the campaigns because you're either getting a refund that then you have to go figure out how to spend or, you know, it's much harder to spend it, right? So 
the marketers are also enjoying very, very large volumes that are created by uh, fraud, right? So um, there simply aren't enough humans on earth to generate that many trillions upon trillions of impressions for big marketers to buy. But yeah. over the years, they've gotten used to buying super large numbers at super low cost. And therefore, they also, in some sense, rely on the fraud to continue because otherwise there's just not enough impressions to buy and the CPMs are going to be much higher than they are right now. So they're enjoying the efficiency targets that they can hit because of the non-human traffic that they're buying. That's your reasoning why you think they are turning. Yeah, efficiency is not really a good term here because when they talk about it and when the agencies talk about it, it's usually, oh, we bought you how many more billions of impressions at lower unit costs, right? Lower CPMs. But let me tell you why that's a kind of a misconception. So in years past, let's say 10 years ago, when uh, the big marketers are buying from the big publishers and they would pay $30 CPMs to a Hearst or a Condé Nast or some mainstream publisher. So it's $30 CPMs cost per thousand. And now they're paying $3 CPMs, right? So you would think, oh, we're getting much better prices on that. But unfortunately, what's happened is they're buying 10 times the quantity Right, so they're still spending $30 total, even though the unit cost is $3. So I kind of call that the Costco mentality because yeah. they're buying so much paper towel and toilet paper that they don't need anyway. Right, But in this case, what's happening is even though the unit price is $3, they're still spending $30. But because the unit price is $3, where do you get that? Right, You get that from crappy long tail sites. Right. Any mainstream publisher that has real cost of content, like real writers, real editors, they have real cost to produce the content. They can't sell ads for $3, whereas fake sites can easily do that. And they're still profitable because it's completely fake. And just this last week, Meg Graham, the CNBC reporter, ran her own experiment. She set up a fake site plagiarized her own articles and stuck it on there, right? Basically, just to show that how easy it is for a brand new site to get accepted into ad exchanges so they can start monetizing, right? So this was a site that was registered literally one day ago. She put a bunch of plagiarized articles on there, and then she applied to a bunch of exchanges and they got accepted, and they gave her the code to start running ads. Now, she didn't actually run the ads, so, you know, because she didn't want to commit fraud, But imagine if it's that easy for someone with totally no experience in ad tech to create a site and add it into an exchange. Imagine if it's a seasoned bad guy. All of these steps are automated. They can create tens of thousands of websites. They can populate all of them with plagiarized content and start making money by pointing a traffic fire hose to those sites. So that's kind of the problem we're talking about. Would you say to brands, If you're playing in the remnant media game, we're talking remnant digital media, you're playing with fire. Just yes or no. Is that pretty much what you're saying? Very simply. Yeah, they're drinking poop water. So basically, they're drinking poop water and they're hoping that the filter that they're using is going to catch all the poop before they drink it. Surely, though, to make this sort of efficient with your analytics, to go through sort of major agency holding groups who buy a ton of impressions at a time and then go through the sort of bad actors that way that it, that sounds like a bit more efficient than going through through it brand by brand just quickly yes or no do you think that would be the best way to sort of carve out the bad actors actually no 
because um, if you have tens of thousands of sites that you have to sort through to try to figure out which ones are good or which ones are not, or if you have tens of billions of ad impressions, right? Some of the tech, the um, validation or verification technologies purporting to be able to do this on an impression by impression basis, right? If you have to sort through tens of billions of impressions and try to decide which is valid and which is not, you're gonna make errors. So my approach is really to focus on the domains and the apps that are cheaters. Right, so there might be one or two impressions on that flashlight app that is generated by a real human, but if they're a cheater, you know, it's really, really hard to pick those needles out of a haystack, right? So it's better to turn off the entire app. So just moving on, like another way of approaching this, which I know you've undertaken, is to go to the uh, industry trade bodies and explain your data and then ask them to go through it and, you know, do their own due diligence on it. You've obviously received a negative response to that. Just very briefly, why do you think that's the case? Because they choose not to even look. So I haven't shown them any of my data. Uh, I've offered to do so to you know individuals. I won't name them here, but basically I've offered over the years to show them, right? Don't take my word for it. Don't trust my numbers, right? You look at the data yourself and you decide, right? And it gets back to very common sense things like if you have uh, 0% bounce rates all the time, do you think that's normal? or you, if you have the exact same click-through rate on all your ads hour after every hour, every day for months straight, do you think that's normal? They've never actually looked at the data because they don't even want to look. So it's really what I call FOFO, right? Fear of finding out. They, they have not even looked and they'd rather um, push me away and not look and say, oh yeah, we've got it covered. We have our own fraud detection companies. And those are the ones that are reporting consistently, you know, 1% fraud like IAS, right? They do that quarter after quarter. And unfortunately, that's only a part of the fraud, right? They're really looking for IVT, so they're reporting on IVT fraud. What that's missing is every other form of fraud that's still impacting the campaigns, but are not detected by those fraud detection companies. I did do a bit of research around this, and I contacted the major industry associations for comment, AIB, ANA, and TAG for this podcast but only TAG got back to me. And I just want to point out that Mike uh, Zanus uh, got back to me, he's the CEO of TAG, and he was very generous with his time. I'm just gonna read out what he said. He said, at TAG, we don't segment the industry into different types of inventory based upon relative levels of fraud. That's a fool's errand because you can find high levels of fraud anywhere, including on premium publishers and in walled gardens. Instead, we work with all companies throughout the supply chain to ensure everyone is filtering for fraud because no single company has the ability to detect all the different types of fraud. Also, fraud can enter the supply chain through SSPs, exchanges, and DSPs, so they need to be part of the solution. We find that fraud is significantly reduced when agencies and brands buy through TAG certified channels, which just means the inventory has been filtered at a three plus points during the transactions. We want to make sure that brands are not paying for large amounts of fraud. The most meaningless types of research is when you simply observe the levels of non-human activity on a site or app. That gives you zero insight, into whether the fraudulent traffic is being monetized. Fear-mongering may sell consulting services, but it doesn't give any real insights into the actual scope of the problem. And that's Mike Zanus again, from CEO from TAG. What do you think to that? Well, that's fully loaded, but let me try to unpack that a little bit for you. So on the surface, filtering is good. So compared to no filtering, obviously filtering is better. Um, but it then depends on the quality of your filters, right? And whether those filters can actually detect the fraud. So I'll be very specific. A lot of the fraud detection companies that are doing the filtering 
their technologies, their JavaScript tags are tuned for looking for IVT, invalid traffic. And while the definition of invalid traffic, according to the MRC, includes all sorts of different fraud, they're still primarily looking at bots hitting web pages. But as you know, uh, as more of the digital spend moves into mobile and specifically mobile in-app, and then now newer channels like video and streaming like CTV and OTT, those channels are not measurable by those technologies. Right? So in the ANA White Ops report from last year, they properly disclosed, or White Ops properly disclosed that they could not measure up to 80% of the impressions, specifically the video ones and the OTT CTV ones. So if 80% of the impressions are not measurable, do you assume that that's fine? Or do you assume that that's fraud? Or should you better disclose that that's not measurable and you shouldn't assume anything from that, right? So uh, very often the filters work by, if they can't detect or confirm that it's fraud, uh, they're very worried about false positives, so they let it through. So when you say, yeah, we should filter it, that's great, but it only catches so much. So I think the better approach is really a combination of proper data collection and analysis. And that's why I try to teach my clients how to do that themselves. So just like you have to learn how to use analytics so that what you know what you're looking at and also what to look for, if they're now familiar with some of these telltale signs of what fraud looks like, they can actually find the fraud by looking at the analytics themselves. And this kind of contrast with kind of the black box approach. So the term black box means the fraud detection companies give you a number at the end of the campaign. They'll say it's 10% fraud or 20% fraud. Let's say, for example, it's 10% fraud. A lot of people just assume the other 90% is fine. Um, but you have to keep in mind a sizable portion of that could simply be not measurable, right? They didn't detect it to be fraud, but it could be because they simply couldn't detect it. And some of the more advanced bots are now known to block tracking tags, right? So the bots will simply prevent the fraud detection tag from loading because they don't want to get caught. And we've also seen this documented publicly where Newsweek a few years ago was caught using JavaScript code, right? We call it malicious code to alter viewability measurements. So the industry had focused on viewability for many years and said, oh, we, we will only buy on viewable impressions. But for the bad guys, no problem because they can just use code to make everything look viewable, right? So I've often said the bad guys or fake sites have 100% viewability 100% of the time not because it's real, but because they use technology to trick the measurement, right? So again, it boils back down to understanding the limits of the technology. And again, that's why I don't take data from anyone else. I have to collect it with my own tech to understand sure. what the limits are and how reliable the data is. And yes. it kind of boils back to very simple police work. You have to have chain of custody of the evidence, right? If you can't track that and can't verify that evidence has not been tampered with, you can't trust it, you can't use it. Yeah, so some trade bodies are working on this, and we've seen this recently with the uh, ISBA and PWC report. They recognized a 15% delta. And I kind of love that word because it sounds almost desirable, like mysterious, but in a good way, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Um, but it is, it's lost income and they don't know where it goes. And, and their research is based on premium inventory and technology. Now, I would like your view on this, but I recognize this is more about the value chain in programmatic and sort of sneaky buggers ciphering money out of the ecosystem. But what is your yeah. view on that 15% uh, delta? Just very briefly. That is 
you know, it's been around for a very long time. I mean, they this is the first time they called it a delta, right? The euphemism for oh, the the money went missing. We can't account for it, right? But ANA, the WFA, since 2015 have also run their own studies on the efficiency in the supply chain, and yeah. they have found a, a very sizable portion of it to it's not necessarily lost. It's going to ad tech companies. And some of those ad tech companies in the supply chain are indeed adding value, so they deserve their cut of that. But the kind of moral of the story for the marketer is that the more vendors you have in that supply path, right, in that yeah. supply chain, the more money you're losing to those other services and not going towards showing the ad. So the more you can shorten that supply chain and the more directly you can buy, right? In fact, if you can buy direct from the publisher, then virtually all of your dollar is going towards uh, showing the ad. So yeah. in those cases, you have less of these leakage problems and also less fraud to deal with. Because again, the more complexity is in the system, the easier the fraud is able to hide. So it's much more efficient for the marketer to buy as direct as possible. It's not to say not to use the technology, because yeah. the technology itself is not bad. But again, the more tech that's in between you and the and the ad showing, and the more complexity there is, the easier for fraud and other bad stuff to creep into the system. So this is my problem with some of the research and these staggering figures. The online advertising industry has, has ballooned and it's gonna to continue to grow, apparently. That can't happen, surely, unless brands are seeing real results, you know, not real efficiencies. I mean, real effectiveness, selling stuff. So how are those two things combined? Yeah, well, that's kind of a circular argument in the sense that, you know, oh, because the ad spend went up, it's got to be good. Right. But that doesn't really hold water. But if you, if you think about it, yes, uh, dollars have shifted into digital and yes, digital marketing works. But a lot of it is what I call shiny object syndrome. Right. The agencies love selling it. Oh, blockchain. Yeah. You know, that's a cool thing. We got to get in on that bandwagon and buy that shiny object. And digital has been that for many, many years. So a lot of brands, uh, they've been spending on the digital shiny object and not looked closely enough on the actual business outcomes. And there's only been a very few number of case examples where the marketer has actually looked into this. And the clearest examples of these were from a few years ago when P&G cut $200 million of their digital spend and saw no change in business outcomes. So whether it's fraud or not, right, it literally did not drive any incremental business outcomes. They could have just not spent that. In fact, they did pause the 200 million and saw no change in business outcomes. And very similarly, Chase, around that same time frame, I think it was like 2018, uh, they cut their programmatic reach from 400,000 websites showing their ads to 5,000 websites, a 99% cut in reach. And they saw no change in business outcomes. So again, they didn't have to show their ads on 395,000 of the 400,000 websites in the first place. So again, those are just examples. More marketers should actually run those tests for themselves. And current virus crisis is a perfect excuse for them to actually run some of those experiments. And in fact, some of them have indeed paused their spend. It would be very good for them to look into whether uh, their business outcomes have changed much. Apparently, as we uh, hopefully come out of this uh, economic slump, more money will go into short-term tactics and uh, digital advertising. So we're probably going to see more issues arise. 
Dr. Val, I, I really appreciate your time. You make a very compelling argument on this case and please keep us updated as things develop and as, as you produce more analysis on this topic. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Make sure to subscribe for all future episodes as we deliver more MediaTel conversations.